0: Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On our program today, vaccine crackdown. Please um, step up and uh, do what you need to do to keep yourself, your family, your community, and indeed our country safe. When will vaccines be mandatory for public servants and for you to travel on planes, trains, and buses? And where is that Canadian travel passport? Will Canadians be getting a COVID booster shot soon? The Health Minister, Patty Hajdu, joins us then landmark victory. This is a huge win for First Nation kids again. After years of legal fights, the federal government is ordered to compensate First Nation children. Will the government appeal? What needs to happen now? The Indigenous child advocate who set this whole key case in motion, Cindy Blackstock, joins us on that. And then, green meltdown.
1: It has been extremely painful. Uh, It has been the worst period in my life.
0: Accusations of racism, a disastrous election result, and the fiery resignation of Annamie Paul. Who will lead the Green Party now, and how deep are the divisions? We'll speak to the former Green Party leader, Elizabeth May. And then, left behind. What does the release of the two Michaels mean for another detained Canadian in China, Hussein Jalil? After 16 years in a prison for human rights work, has his case been forgotten? We'll speak to his wife, Camilla Talandi-Bayeva. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Waves. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made political waves when he took his family on vacation by the Pacific Ocean waves in Tofino, B.C. on the very first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, a day he had talked about as being marked as a solemn day for reflection. Look, no one is vacation-shaming a leader after a very long campaign and the need to spend time with family members, but the timing of the travel has become deeply controversial. Check this out. We needed our leader to be publicly with us on this day um, and, and acknowledging what happened, and, th- and that didn't happen. But it's the fourth wave of COVID-19 in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan that's driving the Prime Minister's most urgent issue right now. Many hospitals in those provinces are on the brink of collapse.
2: I think if we don't see either province really start to put in place some serious public health mitigation, we are going to see further collapse of both health healthcare systems. And I worry that we are then going to see further triage of care to the point where physicians are forced to make life and death decisions.
0: The federal government is now sending military help to Alberta, but that's raised the question, should there be a more robust national systems already in place? When will the federal government have a vaccine travel passport ready to go and how will these things be enforced to talk about that we're joined now by the federal health minister patty Haidu. Uh, good to have you here minister um let me start with the desperate situation in alberta and saskatchewan the alberta government's requested one dose of johnson and johnson that vaccine the Janssen vaccine to help incentivize vac- vaccination from an efficacy point of view is that vaccine as effective as pfizer or moderna or is it to use the old nasi term sort of a second choice vaccine
2: Well, indeed, uh, Evan, the most effective vaccines to date are the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. But we've always said that we would be there for provinces and territories with the equipment and the tools that they need up till now the provinces have not indicated that they were interested in doses of j and j or johnson but recently as you pointed out we have had that request from alberta and we may have other provinces interested as well so we're speaking right now to all of the provinces and territories to re uh, confirm what sure. it is that they're interested in
0: is there any data to suggest that a A one-dose vaccine, like Johnson & Johnson, though not as effective as Pfizer and Moderna, the mRNAs, but is there any evidence to suggest that a one-dose vaccine would have a higher uh, acceptance rates for the unvaccinated than the two-dose? Like, is that actually a barrier to getting vaccinated?
2: Well, it's certainly what the province has indicated to us is that there are uh, constituents, there are people in Alberta that would be more willing to accept uh, Johnson & Johnson, and so they're exploring this right now. Dr. Tam is working very closely with Dr. Hinshaw on the practical implications of that uh, approach. And as I said, at the federal level, uh, given that uh, this is what the province is seeking, we are now uh, ascertaining how many doses uh, Canada would require based on the of provinces and territories to administer as you know this is an approved vaccine in Canada and as soon as we get a sense of the quantity we'll be uh, making sure that we can get that uh, those vaccines as quickly as possible to the provinces
0: vaccine mandates will be apparently a a top priority can you give us a real sense how soon will mandatory uh, um, passports for domestic travel and, and international travel be ready how will they be enforced well, there are two
2: separate um, uh, dynamics there. In terms of domestic air travel and other federally regulated modes of travel, like trains, et cetera, uh, the intent uh, that I've heard from Transport Canada is to have that in place by the end of October. Um, we're work- moving very quickly, of course, because these are spaces that Canadians use all the time and expect us to make as safe as possible. In terms of international proof of vaccination for travel, that's a bit trickier just because we are working, obviously, with provinces, territories, but the international community around uh, what international communities expect in terms of proof of vaccination that work is happening right now through IRCC and will continue uh, but
0: but what's taken so long like the the green pass has been available for the entire EU they have an international passport it's totally accepted it's ready to go it's it's quick it's efficient and it works in the EU for months we still don't know a couple things when ours is going to be ready who's it going to be aligned to why is ours so far behind the Europeans
2: Well, we have been working, as I said, uh, with the international community, but also with provinces and territories who, as you know, control health data. And so part of it is around making sure that we have a way to get access to health data that doesn't compromise people's privacy.
0: The Europeans will accept someone who's got a vaccine that includes AstraZeneca, 2 million Canadians including the Prime Minister and the leaders of the official opposition, all got AstraZeneca. The United States has not said they would accept if you've got an AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna mix. Uh, is your government working to make sure that Canadians who got the AstraZeneca will be able to be uh, use that as proof to get to the U.S.? Those
2: are conversations that are happening right now, actually, between American and Canadian officials on mixed doses, uh, but not only mixed doses, also the resumption of, um, of domestic discretionary travel. And so as uh, those conversations proceed, we'll come back to Canadians. I anticipate that the, inter- the issue of international travel and vaccine acceptance will be one that's with us for a long time. As we know, there are a number of vaccines in use around the world, and uh, n- countries are taking different decisions based on their own Uh, their own advice from their own experts.
0: What about federal public service workers? When will they need to be fully vaccinated? and, And if they don't, is the federal government still prepared to fire them?
2: well uh, the work is ongoing right now with the federal public service and the unions of course the employers of which there are very there are a lot of um, to make sure that the process that's imposed on uh, proof of vaccination for safe workplaces is one that's sufficient and that works for uh, employers and employees and i can't i don't have a date for you but i do know that the prime minister has been clear he expects this to happen quickly and i i share his urgency in this space i think what we want to make sure is that as people are working in their workplaces they are protected some of the worst outbreaks that we've seen have been actually in workplaces and spread in places where people uh, had no choice but to show up.
0: Uh, You've been on the record saying is it you know this is not done the uh, COVID pandemic until everyone around the world's got a vaccination. There's countries that have like 4% vaccination rates. Well, we're going on 80%. But a lot of folks now say, let's follow Israel's example. Let's follow some of the U.S. example. And we need third booster shots. Uh, when will, can, Do you think that all Canadians will eventually get a third booster shot? And if so, when will those start getting out?
2: I'm not going to predict what the scientists will determine in terms of who will need a booster shot and when, but I can say that if booster shots are needed and recommended by the uh, scientists and advisors that are recommending our vaccine strategy here in Canada, we'll have enough doses for every Canadian. As you know, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization has just recommended booster doses for people that are living in congreg- congregate right. settings, like seniors' um, facilities, et cetera, and we are, as you know, able to supply those Booster doses, And we, we have every anticipation that we'll be able to uh, supply doses for whatever the recommendations are. But we have been guided here in Canada by the advice of the scientists and, and the researchers. We'll continue to do that.
0: Finally, I just got to ask you, because you're the senior minister on the program today, about the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. The prime minister decided, instead of reflecting, to take his family on a trip to Tofino, B.C. Many indigenous leaders were uh, uh, insulted by that. Uh, again, I know you attended ceremony, as many others did, uh, but the prime minister didn't. Um, was it appropriate for him, as the leader, on a day, the very first day of national uh for a day for our truth and reconciliation, for him to take it as a family vacation day, was that an appropriate decision by the Prime Minister?
2: Well, listen, I can't speak to the scheduling decisions of the Prime Minister's office, but I can say he was at the event the evening before. And I will say that for my event in Thunder Bay, Pier North, it was incredibly moving to see so many people show up for this first National Truth and Reconciliation Day. Listen, this is a day that is the first in our country. It's a day to uh, remind Canadians about the importance of listening to Indigenous voices and Indigenous people. And that's exactly what happened across this country, whether it was media, that chose to turn over the airwaves to Indigenous people, whether it was local events that chose to host Indigenous people. But the uh, Prime Minister was
0: pictured on a beach. I I get that, and I know what you did, but but it it seems like in stark contrast to what you're describing, all of which is true, and I don't want to make this about one story. This is about the reflection, which I appreciate, but the Prime Minister is a significant figure here. Was it wrong for him to be on a beach with his family on that specific day? You didn't do it he what, did.
2: What I'll say is that this first annual National Day of Truth and Reconciliation is a landmark in our country. It's a it's a it's a call, a TRC call to action that was implemented by our government and it turns the page. It turns the page and it allows for Canadians to actually begin a, a painful but important process, which is having a mm. National Day every single year to listen solely to the voices of Indigenous people. And I am so honoured to be part of a country
0: that's committed to this. Minister, i got to leave it there. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks, Evan. All right, when we come back, a resounding victory for Indigenous children. But what happens now? Will the federal government challenge the court decision demanding that it pays compensation to Indigenous children in the child welfare system? And what does the Prime Minister's trip to Tofino on the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation signify? First Nations child advocate Cindy Blackstock is our special guest on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. So Justice Canada marked the first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. First Nations children scored a long-awaited landmark win in court. On Wednesday, a federal court upheld a Human Rights Tribunal ruling Ordering the federal government to give $40,000 to children affected by the on-reserve child welfare system since 2006. And $40,000 to children forced to leave their homes to access services. The federal government fought this process for 14 years. They said it was unreasonable, but the judge resoundingly dismissed all of their arguments. The question now is, will the federal government appeal this decision? I asked the Minister of Indigenous Services, Mark Miller. Here's what he said.
2: We will review it thoroughly with the
0: merit that it deserves and take a decision in an expedited fashion. What I don't want to leave people with the impression is that we nothing has happened since 2019. And indeed, the judge has recognized that in his decision. So no word on that yet. But meantime, the Prime Minister is under fire for spending part of the very first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, not reflecting, but flying to Tofino, B.C. to spend time with his family. His office denies it was a vacation day, saying Mr. Trudeau spent hours on the phone speaking to survivors of residential institutions. But what message does the timing of that vacation send? And... The court battle. Is it finally over or will the government appeal? To talk about all that, the Scrum is here. Joyce Napier is the CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief. Stephanie Levitz is a Parliament Hill reporter with the Toronto Star. And our special guest today is Cindy Blackstock, Executive Director with the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada. She's the person and the organization which originally filed the human rights complaint in this case and saw it through. So great to have the three of you on the program. As always, Cindy, I mean, obviously, uh, the relief must be tremendous after a 14-year battle Um, but no word on what the federal court the federal government will do what do you make of the decision and what's your message to the federal government
3: yeah the decision was a complete win for First Nations children and their families who have experienced firsthand this discrimination by the government of Canada and to give your viewers a sense of this the discrimination I'm talking about actually separated families. They're trying to recover from the trauma of residential schools. They got less services than everyone else, and that meant that more kids are in foster care than at height of residential schools. We had kids, Evan, where the government would cap the number of feeding tubes for children, so families had to either rewash their feeding tubes or or not feed their kids, uh, because they would get risk infection. So it was a huge win, and it was also a huge win for residential school survivors who made equity and child welfare and Jordan's principle, which is that piece about providing equitable services, the top calls to action.
0: But, but, Cindy, what about the fact that there's no word on whether the federal government will appeal or not? What's your message to them?
3: Oh, I, I'm, I really want them to put down their sword. You know, this this case has been going on for 14 and a half years, um, and they have lost every single ruling except for one that was overturned on appeal um, and while people were paying attention rightfully so to the two Michaels returning from Canada Canada actually filed another appeal on this case on Friday to avoid providing proper buildings so that families could have the services to keep themselves together so mm-hmm. they have until October 29 to appeal and uh, unfortunately I think past behavior uh, says that they're going to do it again.
0: Uh, Joyce, uh, Talk about that, the, the optics of this and, and the substance of of what this means in the fight for compensation. And the, the government, after 14 years, still has not given a decision on what
4: they're going to do with this. And, you know, the government's uh, argument, it doesn't hold water, uh, saying that, well, you know, some of this compensation, we could give more uh, to some of these people. Um, not everybody's case is the same. It has to be a case-by-case. Case. Anyway, all the arguments the government has put forward don't make any sense. Look, the optics of this is terrible. Uh, this is a government that came in saying this is our most important relationship, and this doesn't speak to that. Um, there's an incoherence between what the government is saying and what the government is doing. I mean, you talked about the uh, prime minister's trip to Tofino. It's it's an ad- insult to injury. Not only uh, every day we get the prime minister's schedule. Not only did he tell the media that the prime minister was in Ottawa on private meetings he was neither um, and then telling us well you know actually he did work he was on the phone and, and made a couple of calls this, this whole thing is just it just sounds like a tone deaf prime minister a tone deaf prime minister's office no one's going to shame someone for taking a vacation
0: but but is this the, what about the political timing of both these things Steph
1: So let's just cast back just a little bit, if we can, to the federal election and during the debates when Jagmeet Singh wielded a very powerful line against the Prime Minister. He said, you can't take a knee, which was in reference to the Prime Minister symbolically taking a knee at Black Lives Matter protests, and at the same time be taking Indigenous kids to court. The Prime Minister bristled. He said, you love that line. That's not true. And in fact, it was true, Evan. And you know, Indigenous, as Joyce pointed out, this government got elected saying there was no more important relationship. Um, And they bristle, you know, they get, whenever they get challenged, they get challenged in court, they get challenged in the court of public opinion. Whenever someone dares say to the Liberal government, we think you're making a wrong choice, they get defensive. How is that reconciliation? How is that reconciliation when time and time again, Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government say that they will listen to what First Nations are asking for? They will listen, they will walk alongside them on this path, since when is walking alongside them on a path, getting on a plane and flying to Tofino?
0: City Blackstock, what, what's your sense of that? I, I, and I know it was Orange Shirt Day. Um, it was supposed to be a day of reflection. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, we're not in the business of vacation shaming people. But the timing of this has become incredibly controversial. I want your ta- When you found out that the Prime Minister was uh, with his family on vacation and flo- flew out to Tofino on that day, what was your reaction? What message does that send?
3: It's a complete letdown. You know, when the Prime Minister is not willing to demonstrate that First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples and the residential school survivors and the children in the ground are worth his time on this particular day.
0: And Joyce, Joyce, there's that. And I I don't want anyone to forget about, and you've mentioned it, a coroner's report into the death of Joyce Eshaquan, the Indigenous woman that died. in a Quebec health institution, she was mocked by healthcare workers, and she actually live streamed it on Facebook, it's the only reason people know about it. Uh, the court now says that Quebec must acknowledge systemic racism in the healthcare system and eliminate it. By the way, not the only province. There's been studies on BC, as you well know, about that. But but, but why, this, this is resonating at the very same time, Joyce. What message does that send?
4: Well, interestingly, we haven't had a reaction from the Quebec government, but what we do know, Evan, is that the Quebec Premier has always rejected the notion that there is any systemic racism in Quebec, whether uh, with the police force or in the health care system. Saying, yes, indeed, we have to recognize that there are uh, racist acts and racist people, but not systemic racism, where there was an independent study, as you said, Evan, in British Columbia, where the conclusion was again there is systemic racism against indigenous people in the health care system so we have to conclude sadly that if there is in Quebec and there is in British Columbia there may be uh, in other provinces as well. Steph, I'll leave it to you. There's a lot going on in the
0: last number of days. The court case, now the controversy about Tofino, the Joyce Eshaquan court case uh, decision that that came there. What message is all this sending to Justin Trudeau as he's trying to put together a cabinet and recalibrate in a Trudeau 3.0 on this particular file? And is he starting already way on his back foot?
1: I think it's been known among Liberals for some time, Evan, that Justin Trudeau can be both their greatest asset and their greatest liability, in terms of his brand, in terms of the brand he brings to the party, and indeed the brand he brings to the country. When you're starting off the 44th Parliament with that brand already tarnished, you have to wonder if one thing is, that's going to start happening sooner rather than later is the conversations about who replaces Justin Trudeau and how fast that needs to happen. Because I'm not sure Liberals, you know, when I look at the Cabinet Ministers, who in good faith embodied the spirit of Truth and Reconciliation Day, Health Minister Patti Hajdu, Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller. They were engaged in meaningful dialogue on that day. For them to have a boss that seems to not be doing that, at some point you have to wonder, do they begin to look at him and say, listen, we don't want to keep doing this, we have good things we want to do for this country, and you're stepping all over it.
0: Well, we'll find out the, the key thing, I think, for Cindy Blackstock and so many others. What will happen on the appeal for this case, 14 years in the making? Uh, That'll be a really interesting moment. Uh, Cindy Blackstock, uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, We know it was your birthday on that same day, so happy birthday to you, but obviously on a a big court victory. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Evan. All right, and the Scrum will return later in the program, but coming up next... Green meltdown leader, enemy Paul, resigns from that party on the heels of a terrible campaign. But she alleges racism in her own party dragged her down. Who will take the helm next, and how deep are the divisions? Former Green Party leader Elizabeth May joins us next. Stay right here. With so, after disastrous election result, what comes next for the Green Party of Canada? Following months of very public inner turmoil, the poor election results, leader Annamie Paul resigned, calling her time held as leader, quote, the worst period of her life. Check this out.
1: When I was elected uh, and put in this role, I was um, breaking a glass ceiling. Um, What I didn't realize at the time is that I was breaking a glass ceiling that was going to fall on my head and leave a lot of shards of glass that I was going to have to
5: crawl over.
0: In last month's election, Ms. Paul failed to win a seat she failed to grow the Green Party's seat count in the House of Commons. They ran the fewest number of candidates in a federal election since the year 2000. They lost almost 800,000 votes, but supporters of Anna Meepal alleged the party's federal council undermined her leadership and set her up to fail. Look at this that every turn took each opportunity to undermine her. I think that throwing things like votes of
2: non-confidence, uh, talking about reviewing her leadership, uh, her membership as a leader, and there's so many turns that every day we were waking up to a new issue, and every day it was becoming a
6: joke, like, I can't, it can't get worse than it is now, but yet every day it did. The way she was treated as a woman, as a woman of color, as a Black woman, I don't think any
0: party leader had, in the history of this country has experienced that there were allegations of racism within the party and other allegations of disloyalty so what went wrong what questions need to be answered and who will lead the party now let's find out joining me now is the former green party leader and still the leader in parliament and newly elected uh elizabeth may elizabeth may first of all good to have you back on the program congratulations on on your re-election. i'm gonna ask the question that everyone wants to know enemy uh, paul has resigned are you considering or will you be the interim leader of the Green Party of Canada?
6: I think it's best to be firm and clear on this because otherwise people keep speculating. I will. I do not want to be the leader of the Green Party of Canada. I do not want to be the interim leader of the Green Party of Canada. Okay. But I'll you,
0: support whoever does. Okay, you don't want to be, but my question is, you know politics, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you the political... You may not want to, but would you? No. Okay. I'm Who not being be? around
6: the bush here. Good. Well, I hope that that Paul Manley will consider it, I hope. I also have to correct the introduction. Annamie insists that she has not resigned and that's why after a year of doing exactly what she asked me to do, which was not speak on interview programs like this, I feel I need to clarify for Canadians that our, that Anami is both um, resigned, but still exerting control over all communications from the party, meaning, which meaning, I think, sorry,
0: Meaning what? She announced that she is beginning the process of resignation so so just there's two things there she's told you not to speak but you're speaking but you're saying she's not resigned what do you mean
6: well she told the federal council she had not resigned um, i wasn't part of that conversation she had told the media uh, at, on her resignation press conference which is what we all understood it was happening that she had communicated with the council that she was resigning she hadn't in fact communicated with the council and counsel met with her, and she announced that she had not resigned. We have a lot of soul-searching to do. We have a lot of reckoning to do. We have a lot of work to do. But the current situation of a leader who's resigned but then hasn't resigned is untenable.
0: OK. So, so when you say she's resigned and she's not resigned, I'm trying to understand that, because I spoke to her executive assistant and a, and a candidate on this, on uh, CTV's power play. And she said, in terms of support for Annamie Paul, there was no support. She was undermined from within. And she said, the silence about her from you, Elizabeth May, was deafening. That your silence and support of Elizabeth May, uh, of Annamie Paul, was deafening. That you didn't do yeah. your job. What's your response to that?
6: well it's it's i feel a bit like i'm subject to gaslighting here because i wasn't allowed to speak from and, and i supported anime so much in the leadership there's no question i loved her dearly i loved working with her in the 2019 election and i would have done and i did do whatever she asked of me i campaigned with her immediately after she won leadership i, I went to toronto center i campaigned with her I, When she didn't win in Toronto Centre, I offered, do you want to run in Saanich Islands? Should I step aside for you? She said no. She wanted to stay in Ontario, and then she settled in on Toronto Centre. I have to say against many people's advice, but we stuck. I supported her decision-making.
0: They say your silence in support of her when she was under attack. I'm using those words that she used. She was under attack. She was being undermined. Your silence deafening.
6: Well, I was instructed by Anime not just to do any media interviews, but from beginning of April, I was specifically instructed, do not do any interviews or speak out at all on any internal Green Party matter. And I'm very sorry if Annamie is watching this. I know she would like me to still stay quiet, but I feel the current circumstance requires saying something so that people across Canada who've been Green Party supporters will understand that when they look at a Twitter feed, for instance, and see people saying, why is the Green Party the only party that hasn't put out a statement of, of support and thanks to Anime Paul for leadership? Well, the answer is she controls all of that, the Twitter page, the website, the media releases, and she's telling people not to talk. It is- so it's it's it, awkward. as, as I, I, I've never been through anything so darn awkward in my life, Evan.
0: Is, at this point, in your view, and you've been a leader for 13 years, is Annamie Paul hurting the party? Oh, clearly. Annamie Paul is hurting the party now. You think she, she should, should just would- resign and stop?
6: Well, i think she resigned i think she can help the party we need to learn from mistakes i don't know i mean she never said to me or came to me and said i'm experiencing these things from these people i need your help what's going on i want to know what happened i mean on empirical measurements like how much staff she had or how much money she had or anything like that or how much power and authority she had i never had the authority that i've now referenced a few times to control all communication
0: there's been a lot of disarray what is your message now to enemy Paul? Well, I think it's to say
6: you resigned, resigned, gra- you resigned graciously, you've resigned. We need to work to actually, I want to hear, I'm sure everybody in the party wants to know what happened. I don't know, I wasn't a witness to any glass falling. I don't know what that was. I want to know what that was. I want to, learn. We, we all need to learn from whatever occurred. But we also need to know that nobody is perfect. God knows I'm not perfect. I'm human. I make mistakes. Any leader does. Any leader will. So in the future, we need to to look to rebuild and be ready for an election that we know, given a minority But should
0: there be an independent inquiry into allegations of racism inside the Green Party? I think so too. I think absolutely. Okay. We've already
6: we've we had commission studies before I left leadership. Uh, we had wanted those distributed to the members because we've been learning and working. I don't think that any part of Canadian society is immune from racism. I don't think the Green Party is particularly afflicted with systemic racism or anti-Semitism. I think we are a, a, a subset of Canadian society with a lot of people of very goodwill who are willing to look and be unafraid to face whatever an independent inquiry could find.
0: All right. Elizabeth May, I really appreciate you joining us. It is the most fraught time in your party's history, and we'll see where it goes. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Evan. All right. Coming up, left behind, the return home of the two Michaels is now sparking a renewed push to get another detained Canadian out of a Chinese prison. We will speak to the wife of Hussein Chalil. He has been held in prison for more than 15 years. Stay right here with Question Period return home of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor is not the end of the fight to release Canadians from prison in China. There's another man whose story's been virtually forgotten. He's been jailed in China for close to 16 years. His name, Hussein Jalil. In 2006, Mr. Jalil was arrested in Uzbekistan and sent to China on terrorism charges. His crime He's a human rights activist for the Uyghurs, that's the Muslim ethnic minority population that both the U.S. and the U.K. say are victims of a Chinese genocide. Over the years, Mr. Jalil has not had a single Canadian consular visit since Beijing refuses to recognize his Canadian citizenship on the basis that he was born in China. This week, the Prime Minister was asked why the government has not been successful at securing Mr. Jalil's release, a case that stems back to the Harper years in government. In the case of the Michaels, uh, the uh, the challenge of their detention for political reasons uh, was something that galvanized uh, both uh, public opinion in Canada and around the world. We will continue to advocate uh, for people who are wrongly imprisoned around the world, as uh, we have for many years, as we will continue to. In a statement, Global Affairs Canada says the government indeed has been actively involved in the case. They say also that, quote, Canadian officials continue to raise his case with Chinese officials at a senior level and press for consular access. Mr. Jalil's ongoing detention, they say, is deeply concerning, and we continue to engage with China to verify his health and well-being. But could the release of the two Michaels open the door to the release of other Canadians? And has the government really done enough to get Mr. Jalil out? Let's find out. Joining me now is Camilla Talinda Bayeva. She is the wife of Mr. Jalil. She has not seen her husband in 16 years. Uh, thank you for being here. You and I have spoken a bit before. Um, tell the country, if you would, when was the last time you spoke to your husband or your children have spoken to your husband?
7: Yeah, first of all, thank you for inviting inviting me to your show. So I have seen seen The last day was that... the. The day was he was detained 2006. Since then, I haven't seen him. I haven't heard from him. I haven't talked to him by the phone or the, by the mail. I don't have nothing. I don't have any information about him.
0: You have not seen or heard anything since 2006, and you've got um, obviously your children at home. Has the but government... I- Done enough to get your husband out
7: since ago. Trudeau's government they are in the power. I haven't met with any Canadian politicians, Canadian officials, you know, not with the Trudeau's, not the foreign affairs minister, not with no one. Nobody was interested to meet to talk to what's going on with that case. So, how I'm doing with the poor boys, how I'm raising the voice by myself, you know. No, they were, you know, they were ignoring this case. Okay. They were ignoring, they were pushing away this case.
0: You're Trudeau's saying...
7: That's what, that's what, you know, I'm, I got really mad, you know. It's been, it's been decades, it's been 15, 16 years, it's been, you know, it's been a very, very long year.
0: You're saying the Trudeau government, you've never had an opportunity to meet with consular officials, the foreign affairs minister, the prime minister, uh, Trudeau, you're saying that he, your husband, they haven't uh, raised it. But when we, but foreign affairs does insist that indeed they say Canadian officials do raise the case with Chinese officials. They are pressing for consular access. And they say we're continuing to engage with China to verify his health and well-being. Do you not believe that? No, I don't
7: think so. Maybe, I don't know how they are negotiating, how they are dealing with that case, but I don't have any statement from the Foreign Affairs Department or the trudeau Goldman. I haven't received anything. How they are trying, you know, how did they success? How much did they success? Since, uh, you know, the, the trudeau Goldman in the park? how much did they do? They have to show me the statements, what they have done.
0: In your view, what is the reason that the Canadian government, which has been so active on the Michaels, and I know you're happy about that, but in your view, what do you think the reason is that they've been so active on the two Michaels, and in your view, not active on your husband's case?
7: Yeah, yeah, we are very happy. You know, two Michaels, they reunited with the family, with the children, and then they came to their own land, to Canada, It's, it's very, you know, it's amazing. It's really amazing. And then that's what the question I want to get through: Trudeau, why he was being active that case to Michael's case, why he's not active for Julian's case, why he's hiding this case, why he doesn't want to speak up, why he want, he doesn't want to bring to United Nations, why he doesn't want to bring to a U.S. Congress. Why, Trudeau, why he, you were hiding this case?
0: Supporters of your husband want the next, uh, want this federal government to use the 2022 Beijing Olympics as a bargaining chip to bring him home you know maybe boycotting maybe not send athletes do you agree with that
7: yes yes
0: so what would you like to see happen at the olympics
7: first of all before you know before olympics starts before we're going to send to olympics to china to beijing i want to see Jilil home i want to see my husband home to canada
0: finally um I don't think people appreciate how hard this has been. You have four children. You haven't seen your husband in yeah. 16 years. The world is now talking about the Uyghur situation, and your husband was a human rights, has been a human rights activist. Just give yeah. us a sense how difficult it's been, Camille.
7: know it's been 16 years it's it's been it's been very difficult i told it's not one year two year three year five year six seven years it's been 16 years can you imagine i my kids the boys they were so little now they became adults. They became. They became men. It, it it's been, it's been, it's been, it's been a really really big challenge to raise mm. them. You know, I was the father. I was the mother, and then I didn't have the family members.
0: Mm.
7: I was alone, you know, to raise the four boys, and then.
0: Camille, you and I have had a, a lot of conversations about your husband, and, and, I, and I, I, we can hear it and we can see the pain and how difficult it is, the human cost of this, and, and the courage it takes to tell your story after so long. So I, I want to thank you, and, and believe me, we'll be listening to you and, and keep talking about uh, the situation with your husband. Thank you, Camille. <clears throat> thank you. And that's the example of the human cost of these terrible situations. All right, coming up on the program, Trudeau's tightrope. He failed to win a majority government, but what will the Trudeau government's key priorities now be, and how do they work with opposition on the recovery when COVID is engulfing the prairies? Strategist Zane Velge joins us next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. So welcome to Trudeau 3.0, and the challenge ahead for him is clear. How does his second minority government set a new agenda? What kind of support will the opposition parties give him? The Prime Minister announced he's going to pick a new cabinet this month. We know Christian Freeland will still be the Deputy Prime Minister and the Finance Minister, but the House of Commons is going to return sometime before the end of fall. Mr. Trudeau has promised vaccine mandates for trains, planes, federal workplaces, acknowledge the ongoing COVID-19 crisis in Alberta and Saskatchewan. He's promised to announce a decision on whether or not Huawei, the Chinese-owned telecom company, will be banned from the 5G network following the return of the two Michaels. So it's busy. What will the main priorities be? And how does the COVID prairie fire in Alberta and Saskatchewan change the political agenda? To answer all that, the Scrum is back. Uh, CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief Joyce Napier is back. So is Stephanie Levitz, Parliament Hill reporter for the Toronto Star. And our special guest is our friend Zane Velji, campaign strategist who worked with Rachel Notley and uh, Nenche and several other campaigns. Uh, Great to have you back. And Zane, of course, always lovely to have you. Uh, Zane, I'll start with you. Biggest challenge... On a government entering its third mandate, they didn't get the majority, clearly. Uh, They've got the minority. Lots of challenges out there. What's the priority?
5: i think it's bucketed in two segments the first one is the quick wins they need to do stuff and do it fast simply because they did not get the majority this election gamble didn't necessarily pay off with that majority so they got to get back to work so there's going to be a list of quick wins if i'm in the government right now that i'm just making saying what did we not get done in the last parliament that we can just knock off with this progressive parliament that we have and the second bucket is then the big stuff right so you got quick and then you got big the big stuff people have made it extremely clear climate, childcare, reconciliation, finish the fight on COVID, go do those things and make significant progress in the next 100 to 200 days. So if I'm in the government right now, I'm kind of segmenting it in those two blocks and saying, how quickly can we get back and how quickly can we telegraph, even outside of the legislative agenda in parliament, that this is what we want to do. Because I think more time left in this mushy middle, the, the harder it is for the Trudeau government to define exactly where they're headed to uh, in, in the next little while here.
0: Okay, Steph, what are the biggest obstacles? Let, let's just focus on, to use Zane's analogy on the quick bucket, what are the obstacles to filling that?
1: So one of the obstacles, if we're looking at the child care deals, is that so far he's been able to sign them with, with mostly friendly premiers, people who are already on side with this idea of a national $10 a day child care plan. But there are a couple of pretty notable holdouts. One of them, of course, right now is Ontario. And while the two sides are negotiating, Ontario is about to start gunning its own engine for its provincial election, which is coming down the pipe in a couple of months. So the question is, Does Doug Ford feel like he needs to have this deal in his pocket to go to the voters or does he not really care? So I would consider that one pretty big obstacle for something that could have been a quick win prior to the election or if we had not had an election um, for Justin Trudeau. Uh,
0: Joyce, Huawei, like everyone's talking about the two Michaels. We just had uh, Mr. Jalils, Mm -hmm. who's still in prison for 16 years, his wife on. Recalibrating a relationship to China, that comes down to one thing. Finally, does he have to make a decision on the Huawei situation soon?
4: Absolutely. I mean, we know that. And we know that that situation, that that decision was put on hold for legitimate reasons. Look, we had two men uh, that were in prison in China for almost three years. So, you know, he had to put that on the back burner. Uh, No point in, you know, sort of uh, angering the Chinese more than they were. And they still are, let's face it. So, Huawei, is it a priority? Yes. We know that our partners, the Five Eyes partners, have all already made their decision. Right. And they're turning to Canada and they're waiting for Canada to make their decision. We know that the incoming American ambassador uh, is coming in and wants to know what is Canada's uh, position on China. What will Canada's policies be on China? Yeah, to, to quote Simon Garfunkel,
0: our allies turn their. Lonely five eyes, five eyes to you, Zane. uh, How does the situation in Alberta and Saskatchewan, the COVID situation, kind of recalibrate the agenda, and what does that do uh, from a federal government point of view, and maybe from a provincial situation?
5: well you know the politics here in alberta have always been tumultuous with jason kennedy in power but what i will say right here where i sit is that the anger is extremely palpable i think many people even hardcore conservative supporters right now uh do not care if the prime minister gets a win as long as something happens we are losing 20 plus people a day dying here of COVID in alberta it is extremely extremely bad so as it relates to the political agenda for the feds i mean listen they're they're uh, uh, providing military support Premier Kenny has found anecdotal evidence that the J&J vaccine could be something people take here, so they're providing that. I think it's going to be, once again, an element of the federal government here saying, we want to finish the fight in COVID, but what do we need to do in Alberta that doesn't just finish the fight, but perhaps even extend some of the supports?
0: And, Steph, I just had the health minister on this program. I'm just trying to get some straight answers about when we're going to get clarity on vaccine mandates, vaccine passports. How urgent is that to get as Canadians are... You know, we're still in this weird kind of limbo.
1: Look, I'll I'll borrow another Simon and Garfunkel lyric here. He's got to build a bridge over troubled waters, right? I mean, that is where we are headed. There's a lot of churn underneath the surface right now on this pandemic what's changing in one place is not changing in another it, you know when they when they came out with this mandate for federal vaccination i mean that was something the federal government had that it could do as we've seen throughout this pandemic at time and again they are limited to how far they can step over the provincial boundaries into health care and you could see that frustration in the health minister's face i think when she was doing a news conference back on friday sort of trying to address all the asks from alberta were they too late were they not Um, You know, the federal government says they want to have these these national mandates for vaccines such as they are in place by the end of October. Is that going to make a difference? I, I don't know. It could very well be too late by then. Um, But the question then becomes, you know, what is finishing the fight against COVID look like? What is the end game? And do we end up in a situation where the end game actually is we don't have a national anything anymore? It's all targeted support to the provinces responding directly to what's happening in their own areas
0: of responsibility.
4: Yeah, Joyce, just pick up on that. Well, I think the only thing the federal government did, and did very well, was procurement, right? Uh, Never wanting to interfere, never wanting to overstep. uh, And and I think that was a mistake since the beginning. We're waiting for these passports or call them whatever you want, uh, vaccine passports or certificates. We're also waiting to see what the government is going to do about the mandate. I mean, you know, a, a mandate, a vaccination mandate for civil servants means one thing those who do not want to get vaccinated, goodbye. And that's a hard mm-hmm. decision to make. And uh, we are asking the prime minister, we've asked his ministers, what does it mean, even before the election yeah. began? And they never wanted to answer that.
0: All right, after a long campaign, which was really 50 ways to lose your voters, I just couldn't resist one last one. We'll find out what happens in the new agenda. All right. Steph Levitz, Zane Velji, Joyce Napier. Uh, great to have the three of you here on a Sunday. I always appreciate it. That is your question period for this week. We'll be back here in seven short days. But I will see you on Power Play tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV's news channel. Remember, hug your loved ones and thanks for watching.